0: Hi, I'm Andrew Dubber. I'm the director of Music Tech Fest, and this is the MTF podcast. Now, this month is the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 13 mission. That's the one where well-known coronavirus survivor actor Tom Hanks played well-known spaceship mechanical failure survivor astronaut Jim Lovell. And I can thoroughly recommend you spending some time on previous MTF podcast guest Ben Feist's ApolloInRealTime.org to follow along in that mission. It's not only fascinating, it's both incredibly educational and potentially time-consuming if, for instance, you have children at home with you right now. And if you did hear that episode with Ben that came out a month or so back you'll remember that a lot of the archival material that Ben discovered and restored was used in a fantastic documentary feature film that came out last year called Apollo 11. Now, there were many brilliant things about that film, 99% on Rotten Tomatoes and a five-star Guardian review, but particularly if you're interested in music tech, one of those things is the synthesizer soundtrack. To create that music, composer Matt Morton used only synthesizers that were available at the time of the first moon landing, which, if you'll recall, was 1969, which means that his home studio contains floor-to-ceiling modular Moog racks. It's an impressive thing to behold, and you can marvel at it on his website, mattmortonmusic.com. And well, as you might expect, Matt is someone who can talk enthusiastically about vintage music gear, which sort of makes him an ideal guest for this podcast. So I was delighted to indulge the enthusiasms of composer and gearhead Matt Morton. If you share those enthusiasms in any way, as I do, you're going to love this conversation. Here's Matt Morton. Enjoy. <laughs> Matt Morton, thanks so much for joining us for the MTF podcast today. Oh uh, thanks for inviting me. You're very welcome. Uh, now obviously I have to start with the Apollo 11 soundtrack, which is just an astonishing piece of work. but the thing that's most astonishing about it, I guess, is you know what it looks like behind the scenes with you making it because that's some pretty impressive kit.
1: Yeah, I went a little, uh, some would say overboard. I would say, you know, I I could have bought a few more things. But uh, yeah, you know, all of that kind of flew naturally out of the project itself, though. It wasn't just me uh, trying to come up with excuses to buy... Uh, rare gear
0: um, and rationalize it to my wife or anything. Um, <laughs> the- well, just just explain, explain what it is you bought and used on the soundtrack for the people who haven't heard it or maybe haven't seen.
1: Sure, sure. Well, it might uh, help us to go backwards just a hair um, to uh, kind of understand how we got to Apollo 11 um, as a filmmaking team. And uh, and that will kind of inform why I kind of made the decisions I did um, gear-wise. Right, because this was not your first space movie. No, no. So uh, we did a short film called The Last Steps about Apollo 17, which was the final Apollo mission, or in other words, the last time that we ever stepped foot on the moon uh, back in December of 1972. That was done as a short film. We did a 30-minute version for film festivals and a 20-minute version for uh, online. You can still see that. Um, I I believe they might have renamed it um, something like NASA's Last Trip to the Moon or or something like that. But it was called The Last Steps. And uh, that was done in conjunction with CNN Films and their... Uh, their documentary website called Great Big Story. And so that just like Apollo 11 was an all archival film, meaning that all that you see in here as far as uh, film, all the visuals and um, all of the voices and, and everything was actually from the time of the mission. So um there were no talking head interviews with 90-year-old astronauts rec- trying to recall the events of 50 years ago. There there was nothing new filmed for it. So um, for that score, I kind of let myself use any instrument that I wanted to. Um, I didn't limit my palette. I just kind of went for it. Kind of anything in the studio that I wanted to use was fair game. And so a lot of the sounds that made its way onto that score were fairly modern sounding. And Mm -hmm. there's kind of a cool juxtaposition between the the modern approach of the score and the sound of the score because of the instruments and effects that I used and the completely period uh, visuals that you see. And there's a cool side to that, but there was also this nagging question in my mind as I was kind of watching it on the big screen at a film festival – I was like, you know, it would be really cool if maybe I could, I might have, you know, done an approach where any of the sounds that you're hearing from the score could, you know, only could have been made, you know, what if I would have only made it using instruments and effects of the time so that literally it was, you could, nothing would. Uh, potentially knock you out of that sense of being there and feeling like you're seeing and hearing the past. So uh, the viewership on The Last Steps was really good. I think, you know, the online version was 20 minutes and our average viewership was like 19 and a half minutes, which means that almost everybody watched the entire thing if they clicked on it, which is pretty so, amazing in this day and age of uh, short attention spans. <laughs> so yeah, absolutely. So we got the nod then from CNN to, uh, to do the... Uh, the fiftieth anniversary of, of Apollo Eleven was coming up, and they wanted to do something similar. Uh, so, th- essentially, they were like, "Hey, you guys have already kind of proved this concept with your thirty-minute uh, version. Just triple the length and switch from Apollo Seventeen to Apollo Eleven, and you know, let's see what we can do." So, uh, that's what we did, and so I did get my chance to try and do a score using only period instruments. So. There's the answer to your question is that uh I uh I only I kept myself to a limited palette. Um I only used instruments that uh could have been used by a composer in 1969. Now granted he would have had to have a, a pretty big budget in order to have the stuff that I used, but primarily I focused, um, you know, I used the orchestra because of course the orchestra w- has been around for hundreds of years, but I also yeah. used uh, a hymn and organ, I used uh, a Mellotron, which is an early uh, form of sampler. Well, of a type loops, right? Yeah, it's a keyboard instrument with like, I think, 36 keys or, or around there, and each key on the piano would trigger an eight-second tape loop. So it was literally, you know, magnetic tape uh that was read by, you know, that there were that many tape players in the thing, and it would be a recording of whatever instrument that was. Um, so if it was flutes, they literally recorded a flute player playing every single note on the keyboard. Um, Uh, for eight seconds and then at the end of the eight seconds then it it was at the end of the loop and it would rewind so if you were still holding that key down it would just go dead (laughs) so uh you know the beatles used that famously they used uh, the flutes uh at the the intro of strawberry fields yep um stairway to heaven has the flutes um on it as well uh the strings Mm -hmm. and cellos and uh you know, vocals are all over uh, 60s, 70s. You know, the 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 choir, that kind of like eerie choir um, has been used by Radiohead and et cetera. So I used one of those. I used a Hammond organ and a Leslie uh, speaker. I used old uh, valve uh, guitar amplifiers and basses and, and guitars and stuff. But primarily, I focused in on, I, I was like, what's the main voice of this Score gonna be, um, and I had, I had already dabbled with these a little bit on the previous score, but I, I was trying to think like you know, the Apollo mission was the cutting edge of science and technology in in the late 1960s, and a lot of people who study these things have kind of acknowledged it as, uh, as uh, having fast forwarded the normal pace of technological uh, advancement by you know. 10 to 20 years, um, some, you know, you pour that much money. So it was like 3% of our GDP or something like that. Now it's like, wow. you know, 0.3% is NASA's budget. <laughs> so you pour yeah. a ton of money into it you, and you get 400,000 people working on it. And you know, it, lo and behold, we came up with a bunch of really cool stuff, especially computers, you know, the, that technology and, uh, all sorts of things. Um, that we don't have time to talk about. But anyway, I was trying to look, is, was there an equivalent thing in the music technology world? So, you know, throughout history, innovations in instrument building or the creation of new instruments, um, uh, or just refinements of old instruments have led to, you know, uh, new music being created because, uh, composers and and songwriters and stuff they're like "Ooh, look at this new gadget oh it's you know we don't just have to like like you look at the like the horn or the french horn um originally that didn't have any valves on it so you had to you had to write music using the overtone uh series um meaning that you couldn't just pick any key and you if you did pick, you know, a certain key, you had to stick to certain uh, notes that were that would occur naturally with the instrument. But then uh, same thing with, you know, um, the trumpet and whatnot. So once they added valves to those instruments, then they could play chromatically, meaning that all 12 notes of the of music could be used, not just the ones that were in that particular key, and so then composers could write, you know, a little bit outside the lines, and you know, get a little bit more sophisticated with their um, writing. Same thing with yeah. the piano; the you know, the the full name of the piano is the piano e forte, meaning that it can play soft and loud, not just one volume like the harpsichord or other keyboard, either you know, the organ. Um, uh, well the organ I guess you could you could vary a little bit, but you know typically uh you, you know the main keyboard instrument used with orchestras was the harpsichord and it could only play right which well, on... that
0: just plucked yeah right
1: so you know you you had no dynamic control um, over your performance so once the sure. piano came out now keyboard players can put a lot more nuance and and uh, emotion into their performance anyway i'm I'm not trying to teach a seminar on this or anything but um, no
0: but it's it's good informational background yeah
1: yeah yeah so you know and in, in in you know the the advances kept going so like beethoven in the 1800s kept pressuring piano makers to you know he knew he wanted louder more powerful you know lower lower notes and you know more volume so that the keyboard could become more and more a dominant force. So I was looking for something like that. What was going on in the 60s? What music technology was happening then that I could harness and kind of use as an analog to the technological advances going on on screen um, through the space program? And there was a lot of things that I, I could have chosen from. I mean, I could have could have gone the electric guitar route because you know there was tons of innovations in amplifiers and effects and you know the wah-wah pedal and the univibe and And also
0: approaches to playing yeah
1: yeah 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 exactly you've got people like hendrix taking you know um some of the you know chicago blues and and robert johnson and older styles of blues and just like you know, basically adding acid and <laughs> making it into a technicolor, like, explosion. Um, but what I wanted to focus on and what kind of... There were a few reasons for this, um, aesthetic and, you know, academic, but I focused on synthesizers. Um, for one, the the modular synthesizer started to be developed in 63, 64. Um, independently, on both coasts of America by uh, Bob Moog uh, in New York and uh, Don Buchla over in in San Francisco. And both Mm -hmm. of them were, you know, right around the same time. um, They they each kind of had certain strengths. No one disputes the fact that both of them were very uh, innovative and both... uh, Entirely independently. Yeah. Yep. Wow. Yep. So Bob had a, a, you know, even from the 50s, Uh, he had a mail order theremin company. So if you opened up, like, I forget what magazines he advertised in, maybe Popular Mechanics or, you know, something like that. Um, You would see, if you went to the back of the magazine, you'd see a little mail away uh, thing, you know, send $20 to this post office box um, to R.A. Moog Inc., you know. And, Herb Deutsch, who was a music teacher on Long Island, um, sent away for one of these theremin kits and built it and uh, was messing with it and loved it and was teaching his kids about electronic music. And uh, the two of them ended up at, I believe it was the New York State Music Educators Conference or, or something like that, where you know, there was a room, a gymnasium full of people who were selling different types of orchestral instruments or, or band instruments. And, you know, here's Bob Moog with his theremin kits. And Herb Deutsch is, is a music educator in that state and comes into this room and literally no one's in the room except for Bob Moog and Herb Deutsch. And he goes over and sees what's on the table. He's like, I bought one of those from you. And <laughs> so they start talking and They and, you know, uh, Herb also, uh, and he's still alive, uh, Bob has passed, but um, Herb was really into um, electronic music and he was kind of hip to some of the avant-garde music that was happening in New York, uh, New York City. And he was like, you know, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. Like, could you build me a module that does this or does that, you know? Up to up until that point, electronic music was pretty much all music concrete, which was all done with... Uh, tape recorders kind of like the sure. BBC uh uh Radiophonic Radiophonic World workshop yeah. yeah like Dale Derbyshire and um and all those guys the Dr Who you know theme in in 1963 and so uh, you know in order to get electronic tones um they either had to you know record like the sound of a lampshade or something and then speed up or slow down the the tape player to get different pitches or they would use a laboratory oscillator Um, Which at that time was, you know, those were they were crazy expensive and they weren't voltage controlled Meaning that you you had to turn a dial To get different sounds so if they knew that they needed, you know They almost had to write the piece in their head or on paper before they Set out to do this because they would need to know what notes they needed for their composition and then do the math to figure out what frequencies to set the oscillator at then they would record those notes onto tape. And then in order to get a sequence of notes, you'd have to literally get a, a, a razor blade out and cut the tape. And, you'd, yeah. you know, it, after you pick the tempo, you would know, okay, based on my tape recorder being, you know, uh, seven and a half inches per second... Um, a quarter note equals exactly, you know, at this tempo, it equals, you know, 3.7 seconds or something, so, which equates to how many inches of tape. So, like, if I want a quarter note of, you know, uh, middle C, then I know I have to cut this tape, you, you know, to two and 2.47 inches or something. You know, it's like...
0: Yeah, i are yeah, sort of spoiled with digital multitrack Yeah, now yeah, like,
1: yeah. I mean, I know I'm going down the rabbit hole, but, like, basically... It was very meticulous work to do something like the Doctor wow. Who theme song. I, I, I believe that you know uh, Delia did not write that, but she, her job was to realize that using electronic, you, you know, um, music and and. Uh, music Concret. so that took her weeks and yeah it really puts in perspective the sort of the scale
0: of what was required in order to put something like that together
1: exactly so it was exactly this tediousness that was motivating um bob and don to speed the process up you know for people who don't didn't want to make music uh live using a you know, a rock band or a, an orchestra or whatever, the people that were really pushing the boundaries of electronic music were were hoping to, to find ways to speed up the music concrete or, you know, just the avant-garde music production process. So that's where, like, the voltage control idea came about, where you could use voltage being sent from either a keyboard or a, um, you know... a Anything, an oscillator or a sequencer, or anything to control the oscillator to to change its pitch quickly, so you didn't have to cut up a bunch of uh, tape. You could kind of do these um, um, compositions in real time. So, anyway, yeah, um, and so, play live, <laughs> and play live, yeah. So, uh, Herb and uh, and Bob, and also like actually a bunch of other musicians. You know, Wendy Carlos. Uh, Vladimir Usochevsky, Um, You know, various people had different ideas for, like, an envelope generator, which would control the contour of, you know, the attack, the decay, the sustain, and the release of a note. You know, when you hit a key, how quickly does the note come on, and then how quickly does it fade away, and stuff like that. Um, other people had ideas for, like, the low-pass filter, the very famous, like, wow kind of kind of sound where you would be filtering away certain frequencies, um, after you make them. And anyway, Bob, Bob's approach was very, he was in touch with a lot of musicians, a lot of, uh, successful, um, composers, um, commercial composers in the ad world in New York city. And so his designs tended to be a a little bit more musical, uh, Traditionally-wise, meaning it adhered kind of to the traditional Western 12-note scale. Um, it was easier to kind of incorporate along with traditional instruments. Um, you, could, you could make it play, stick to normal scales. Whereas Don Buchla was like, he was out there, you know, making this thing. And he was like, why are we making new instruments to make old music? So like you know when Switched On Bach came out, which used a Moog synthesizer to um, to play old Bach music, um, that was in October of 1968. That was Wendy Carlos. It was the it was a gigantic sensation. It, it was a, a gr- huge hit. Yeah, yeah, huge. Blew up the synthesizer into into the mainstream uh, awareness, and a lot of it it really divided all of the the synth lovers uh because there were a bunch of people like uh Morton uh Sabotnick and Don Buchla and you know uh Suzanne Chani and you know all of the the folks who were trying to make a new music with the the new instruments and weren't using 12 tone the 12 tone western scale or you know traditional music scales or anything and and for them it was like oh my gosh you know now everyone's going to use this synthesizer to just play the same old music that we've been playing for hundreds of years <laughs> so yeah. uh but you know it's is going
0: to sound squelchier
1: yeah 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 well you know it's i like both worlds i really do um yeah. there are things that that bobs machines do really well. um, And there are things that Don's machines do really well. um, Because I was going to, uh, basically, so I, to answer the original question, I found the synthesizer to be sort of that analog of the advances that were going on in NASA. And, you know, just like NASA's advances in technology that kind of what they came up with ended up having far reaching applications that they could have never dreamed of. It was almost like, you know, they came up with some, these ideas that were, you know, d- the the effect on the future was like a cone-shaped dispersion pattern, just reaching out, you know, left and right hugely. Um, same thing happened with the synthesizer, because, you know... Uh you, you got the bleepy bloopy West Coast synthesis stuff, um, that kind of forged ahead and made sounds that no one had ever heard or dreamed of. And then you had the synthesizer, you know, the the more traditional applications of it um going through Wendy Carlos and um Keith Emerson with Emerson, Lake and Palmer, and uh, you know um, Tangerine Dream and Kraftwerk and and all of the guys that tended to use it a little bit more um, within the the framework of traditional music a little bit more. But and then you you've got all of the sound effects being used on uh, commercials and movies and and whatnot. So it really blew up. Plus, you know, the synthesizer. Also uh, enables you know things like dance music to happen. Um, you think of like Giorgio Moroder, um, um, you know some of the disco era sounds. The the that repetitive um, you know cycling of of a sequencer, you know the same eight notes over and over and over again. It's propulsive and it it sort of gave birth to new genres of music. You know it's it was still creating stuff in the late eighties, early nineties with. Uh, with Acid House and and, and stuff like that and all the dance music that's still going on. I mean, it's pervasive in all of music now, Um, but back then it wasn't. And so it was kind of – the synthesizer was having its big bang in the late 60s just like um, all of the technological advances were – at NASA, so right. well, that's
0: a good cosmological way of explaining it—the Big Bang of uh, of, uh, of synthesizers—and parallels really nicely this idea of sort of mapping it onto a uh, period space film. Tell me about the the three C specifically, because that's that. I mean, that wasn't an original that you got your hands on, was it?
1: Right, right, yeah. So there, you know, in the sixties, uh, a Moog synthesizer. Um, To get one like I have, which, uh, like you said, it's the Moog Synthesizer 3C, it's it's a modular synthesizer, but it was a pre-configured set of modules. So, Uh in the early days, you could order um, as many or as few of any of the kinds of modules um, that you wanted. So... For people who aren't familiar with what a modular synthesizer is, if you could picture like a 1920s or 30s telephone operator um, with their little headset on and someone calls them and says, please connect me with Klondike 57329 or something. And so they're like, okay, hold please. And they get out a patch cord and they literally patch the call that they're on into another part of their little electronic circuit board and that literally in an analog sense, connects that call with the, the, the network that they need to get to to call the person that they want to. Um, a modular synthesizer is just like that. You've got different modules um, that are mounted into this enclosure. Um, so you've got basically uh, wooden boxes with a bunch of electronics on the front. It's, it's, it's very inspired. The design inspiration actually came from a lot of like World War II Um, type stuff with, you know, you've got radio
0: transmitters and that sort of thing.
1: Yep, exactly. So yeah, if you picture like a battleship with, you know, the radar going and like little dials and and switches and stuff that it, it basically looks like that, but each module has a different job. And if you don't connect them together, it makes no sound at all. You need to connect the oscillator, which is the sound source, um, and any synthesizer has a bunch of oscillators you patch those all into a mixer which gives you the ability to kind of balance the different ingredients sound ingredients then you patch all of that uh, up into the filter which can take away frequencies um, that you don't need um, which is uh, it's called subtractive synthesis you start with a very rich sound and then you take away what you don't need and that leaves you the sound that you then hear Um, then from the filter to uh, a VCA, which is basically like it—it only—it's kind of like an organ. Um, it only lets notes through the gate um, when you press the key on the mm-hmm. keyboard. Um, and then you've got the envelope generator that that gives shape to the notes. And then you've got a mixer then that runs into your your recorder and whatnot. Um, so the three C. Um, you know, in the early days you could you could configure your system any way you wanted to, but they started to see that everyone tended to like certain combinations of modules. So the, there, in uh, I believe it was 67, they started selling prefabricated modular synthesizers. the one, the two, and the three. And the three was the biggest one. Uh, the C stands for wooden cabinet. Uh-huh. Um, so mine mine was meant to kind of stay put in a in a studio. Um they later made the 3P, which is P for portable, um and that came in like, you know, black uh tolex cases um that you could then put a, a, a you know, you could case it up and you could take it with you to a gig or, right. or whatever. Right, what
0: you've got is kind of wall-sized furniture, essentially a bookshelf system <laughs> with knobs or knobs and cables all over the place.
1: Yes, if you've ever seen a picture of uh, Keith Emerson uh, playing the Moog modular synthesizer with Emerson Lake and Palmer, where it's just this huge wall of electronics with all these patch cords looking like, you know, psychedelic like spaghetti that's what uh, my basement looks like. <laughs> so <laughs> how yeah. Much of,
0: how much of the uh, the sound generation and sound design and, and uh, well musicianship to be frank is about stumbling across sounds by playing with the knobs and how much of it is like you know you know we p- in the same way as like for instance I guess a cellist as you also are I understand knows where to put your fingers because that's where you put your fingers before when it made the sounds that you liked last time uh, how much of it's sort of by accident how much by design when you're creating sounds on on the on the modular synth
1: I would say that it it would vary from cue to cue or just you know from musician to musician um, I definitely wrote some music um it totally sprang up from experimentation you know so there's something really scary but fun about taking just wiping out a patch um so if you stumble upon a, a sound it's awesome but like you know if you use a software instrument you can you can save that preset and come back to it anytime you want within you know a split second um it's It's just like calling up, you know, if you've got Microsoft Word, how you can open up a document, work on it, save the changes, close it, open up a completely different document. And it's always, it always brings you right back to the state of uh, the document when you left it last time. Well, old analog gear doesn't
0: work that way. (laughs) And actually, so are you taking photographs of, of, uh, you know, how, how the setting was when you liked it? I actually found that
1: it would be a little quicker for me to actually just uh, use paper and pencil. I mean, totally old school way. And just if when I would stumble upon a sound, I would, um, it was typically for a certain scene or for a certain piece of music. Um, and I would, before I would wipe out the patch, I would um, just meticulously document it. And sometimes it would take two or three pages. Um, because you not only have to document, you know, how the signal is routed and how all the modulate, the voltage modulation sources are routed, but you also then all the modules have, you know, switches and knobs and dials and stuff that are at certain, um, you know, uh, spots. So every knob and switch and patch all has to be, uh, documented, um, so yeah, it would take quite some time, but I, I would kind of knowing that it was it would take you know twenty minutes to wipe out a patch and and you know a half hour to forty minutes to build a patch up even if I you know documented it perfectly, I would try to record um, if I was doing a particular scene um, or a cue, I would try to do it in various different ways, almost like you try to get an actor to do it like all right. Do it with more energy this time. All right, this time be a little sadder. You know, I would try to um, get takes of the cue down um, with some variety so that if I needed something different from it, you know, if if the cut of the film changed or um, I decided that this this sound was too bright and I wanted a darker one, I would have it without having to, you know, do all the work of reconstructing the patch and re-recording it and all that kind of stuff. Sure.
0: Um, How are you syncing this to pictures?
1: Um, well, so I recorded everything through uh, the computer. Um, unfortunately, I, you know, I would have loved to to carry this uh, idea of only using 1969 technology all the way to the bleeding edge, but um, the way that that modern movie making works, you need to be able to be fluid and make changes um to uh the you know the picture was changing up until like two days before the Sundance deadline so I needed I needed to be able to make very small timing changes and all kinds of changes that just would not have been possible if I had to you know get a razor blade out and and you know do use a reel-to-reel tape recorder like they would have used back then so I was using a computer um, back in the day, in, in the '60s, if you wanted to synchronize your synthesizer to a tempo, you would lay down uh, a metronome click onto the tape. So, say you had a you know an eight or a sixteen track recorder, um, maybe you'd pick you know track sixteen or track eight to be kind of your tempo source. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you could then route that, those steady clicks, uh, you could route those into the synthesizer, into a module um, called a uh, envelope follower. So what that does is that you feed the, the sound source into there and every time this, it hears a sound that goes above a certain threshold of loudness, it uh, not only generates a voltage, um, Relative to that volume, so you know, if you if say your threshold was at negative thirty dB, if a sound source came in at negative twenty eight dB, it would trigger the key the the envelope follower, but it would it would only put out a little voltage. Whereas if it came in at negative ten dB, which was much louder, it would it would generate a, a voltage much louder. But at the same time it would also generate what's called a trigger or a, or a gate signal. And that gate signal could then be used to um, advance a sequencer by one step. So uh, what a sequencer is, it, it's the thing that makes uh, repeatable patterns in a synthesizer work. It basically spits out the notes over and over again. It'll have an internal oscillator that'll allow it to run at its own speed based on however you set the knob on the actual unit. Mm -hmm. Or it can be controlled by external um, gate signals or trigger signals. So essentially, I was sending trigger signals to the synthesizer. It was hearing those trigger signals, and it was advancing... The sequencer by one note every time it heard the click coming off uh-huh. of the computer. So um, not,
0: you're not using MIDI in any way.
1: No, I didn't use MIDI for any pitches or anything. Like, like say there was a melody and uh, you know I, I I messed up and I hit a C sharp instead of a C. Um, yeah. If you were recording in MIDI, you could go back and you could you could just literally drag that note. In the computer and just drag it down and then re-record it to audio and you'd be good um, all of the keyboard work all of the um you know filter sweeps or changes in the the synthesizer those were all done in real time with my hands um, i didn't use midi for anything but i what i did do i did use midi to uh control the sequencer on The synth. So instead of recording a metronome down to tape and sending it through the the uh, envelope follower, like I explained, you know, that someone in 1969 would do, um, I could skip that step and just um, send, you know, generic notes at a certain frequency. I sent those um, to a a MIDI to control voltage um, interface. And so I, I could cut out the envelope follower and, and send trigger signals directly to the sequencer. Um, I held myself to the rule of, could it have been done? And yes, it could have been done. But in certain you know situations where if it was just six in one hand and half dozen in the other, I'd, I opted for the easier route. So right, I did right. use MIDI, but not in the way that you traditionally think of MIDI as being able to control every aspect of a
0: synthesizer. So, what apart from the uh, the Moog 3C synth and the strings, obviously, you've got from the orchestra, what other kit have you got uh, kicking around in there?
1: So, uh, one of the main things that I used in the score was a, uh, a what's called a Benson Echo Rec 2. It was... Uh, you know, back in the day, the only ways to get echo, which is like, you know, you make a note and then it goes, you know, it's like echo, 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 you know, something like that um, was either using a tape echo, which is uh, you would use a tape recorder and you would put it into record mode. and, But instead of monitoring the sound off of the record head, you would monitor it off of the uh, Playhead, which would be you know an inch or inch and a half or whatever, um, further down the tape path, right. so there would be a, a sound delay there. You could hear it in like kind of the early days of Sun Records, uh, Elvis Presley, and and that you know uh, John Lennon used it a lot on his voice too, where you get that slapback delay. Sure. Um, so that would use magnetic tape, but um, in the '60s uh, there was an Italian company called Benson, and they came up with a method of using a rotating uh, drum uh, with, instead of tape, they would put a magnetic strip around this rotating um, drum and then use tape heads around it and uh, generate echo that way. And um, I was made aware of these through Pink Floyd, um, David Gilmour and uh, Sid Barrett and and Roger Waters and those guys, those they used these back in the sixties and in seventies for a bunch of kind of you know trippy you know sound designy type stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's a company in Derbyshire, uh, specifically in Critch, uh, up in the north of England, called Soundgas Limited. And I came upon them on Instagram, and they they restore and modify all sorts of old uh, vintage uh, instruments and effects. And so, because the Benson was developed in the 60s and uh, and whatnot, you know, it was kind of fair game. And I, I just saw all these videos that they would make of just, you know, running old drum machines into them and, and dubbing stuff out and, and getting, you know, make coming up with all these trippy sounds. And I was like, that would be amazing to use on the soundtrack. So, um, I bought a, a sixties era, all valve, uh, Benson echo rec two, which was not cheap, but very worth it. <laughs> so uh, a lot of the sounds of the synthesizer in Apollo 11, um, I would actually, I would direct all of the direct sound of the synth to one of the stereo sides, so maybe the right side or the left side um, uh, of, you know, just that one speaker. And then I would feed that into the Binson, and then uh, Soundgas actually did this modification. I was the first person to ever ask for it, but they gave me a wet-only output of the Benson Echo Rec 2. So normally you would, the output of the unit would give you the original sound plus the echoes added onto it. Right. But you could only turn up the echoes so loud. Uh, So you could never like have it be louder than the original source, for example. Um, And I was like, you know, I'll have more control with it In the mix, if I could just get the echo on its own. So they did that for me, and I ended up like really having a lot of fun during the experimentation process of using that wet only output and panning it opposite of the original dry signal. So if you would hear a note, you'd hear it on the right side, and then it would ping pong over to the left side, right as the new sound was appearing on the right. So you'd get these harmonies going instead of just hearing eight notes in a row you'd hear the you know note 1 on its own then you'd hear the echo of note 1 and and the new note 2 on opposite sides, then you'd hear two and three, then you'd hear three and four, et cetera, et cetera. So I I was able to, you know, I used that throughout the whole score, but.
0: And I guess you're adjusting the speed of the rotation of the cylinder in order to get them to match up.
1: Yeah, the other thing that they did, um, which was not available on the original Benson Echorec units was they did a a very speed modification, um, meaning that on the Benson, you have, you know, an erase head, and a record head, and then you've got like four to six um, different, you know, playback heads. And those playback heads, the positioning of them and the distance from the record head gives you the delay time. Right. Um, so that delay time would kind of lock you into certain tempos that would work in musical ways. Um, say you wanted like an eighth note delay or quarter note delay or something, you could only pick tempos that were mathematically, um, you know, uh, related to that, that speed or whatever. So what they are doing and still do is they will take out the old motor that only worked at one speed and they'll put in a variable speed motor and add a knob on the side. And what that allows you to do is to match the, the delay speed of uh, the Benson to any tempo. So, right. um, so yeah, I used that a ton and, uh, it's, it's a huge part of the score.
0: And it's not like they couldn't have done that in the sixties. It's just that they didn't. Right. Exactly. Right. Gotcha. I have to say, when I watched the film, and I assume this is the same uh, in, in cin- I didn't get to see it in, in cinemas, but I did get to see it on a, on a big system on a big screen. Um, and it's an incredibly impressive sounding piece of music as well. I mean, the the presence of it, the base of it, the sort of the fullness and richness, the layers of sound, all, all that sort of thing. Is that something that is maybe a little bit more twenty first century in terms of the uh, production you know, qualities that were going on?
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, I I probably had more tracks at my disposal than you know most people would have. Um, I didn't I didn't go overboard in in most situations. Um, and it, it, you know, it, if you look at the fact that you know albums like Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band in '67, when that came out, it blew everyone's minds because mm-hmm. at that point, all there was technology-wise were four tracks. Um, I think in America we were a little more advanced than uh, EMI was, you know, in London at Abbey Road. And the Beatles were constantly on their case about like, come on, you know, like Motown's got an eight track or, you know, (laughs)
0: um,
1: Gold Star has a 16 track or wherever. Um, So what they would do is they would record four tracks and then they'd live mix those four tracks down to one track on another four track so they they would do what are called reduction mixes so they'd turn four tracks into one track and then they'd erase those original or start with fresh tape on the original four track and then you know and and then fill up yeah yeah yeah. so um, it was possible to have endless tracks back in the day um, but you had to make mix decisions much earlier than I needed to and you know, obviously, I tried to use period-style mic preamps, you know, tube-style uh, preamps, and in early solid-state technology, as much as I could. But still, you know, the computer is always going to sound more clear than tape. And you know, the other thing that you battle with reduction mixes and endless bouncing is is that in the analog world, you just end up getting more and more hiss and background noise and the more times you rewind and record and rewind and play and rewind you know you're wearing the tape down too the the oxide is actually stripping off of the magnetic tape so um the audio quality probably um, was much higher with my production than it would sure. have been at the time, but, you know.
0: Well, I mean, I guess that sort of fits really nicely onto the onto the um, archival footage that's been uh, restored and sort of maybe digitally enhanced and cleaned up, clarified. And, and I guess there's that sort of punch to it as well.
1: There you go. Uh, yeah. And really, you know, there's a difference between being just completely anal and and uh sticking to a rule that you set for yourself and I don't think that's necessary um you know I wasn't trying to sound like Bernard Herrmann got a Moog synthesizer and did a score back then and you know make it sound like someone who'd only heard music up until 1969 tried to make a 1969 sounding right score um, well, that raises a really interesting
0: question, because one of the things that had me wondering is to what extent is this Matt Morton doing 1969 music, and to what extent is this, this is what Matt Morton music sounds like? Right.
1: Well, my main thing was use an a period palette, but let myself be me. Sure. You know, let myself write music the way that I want to hear it, but because I'm using these old tools it will have a certain sound that will hopefully kind of bridge the gap between then and now. Um, I think if I would have written it like a composer, you know, if you even just go back to scores recorded in the 90s, they sound kind of foreign to a modern ear. Um, I, I would argue that a lot of, uh, you know, scoring style changes. Um, it changes more slowly than pop music, but it definitely, you know, if you if you go back and listen to old comedy routines in the '70s, some of them just the jokes yeah. don't land. Yeah, anymore. for sure. <laughs> um, if you go back and you listen to old scores, they a lot of times they sound kind of cheesy or a little bit just too on the nose. Yeah,
0: well, having said that, like 1960. Eight, I think it was, Planet of the Apes was a sort of legendarily avant-garde soundtrack. Yeah. And people were really pushing the boat out on what music should sound like for films. Yeah. At the exact time you were sort of uh, aiming for, how much of that sort of factored into what you were doing?
1: Well, you know, I certainly listened to, uh, uh, you know, my approach to scoring is very much like a method actor. I mean, I watched... Every NASA documentary I could, multiple times. Um, every you know narrative uh, recounting of the Apollo mission. I read as many books as I could, not not just on the Apollo program, um, but also about music at the time. I, I watched other period films, etc., and I built up playlists in iTunes and Spotify of. Um, music of the time, you know, different palette ideas that I could uh, maybe be inspired by and and that kind of stuff. And if we wanted it to sound exactly like 1969, then maybe we should have just licensed tracks from back then. Because it's impossible to remove the last 50 years of music history from my brain, you know? (laughs) Like, I was born in 77, so what do I know about, like, what it felt like to be in 69? Right. But at the same time, you've got an audience in the theater who also were not around at the, uh, the time of the Apollo mission either. Or at least not functionally. Right. But they, and they want to experience this. But in order to communicate with them and tell the story in a way that they can feel it as a modern person, I felt like I needed to score it in a modern way.
0: What What is the sound of Matt Morton's music? What, uh, what sort of sounds authentically you? Oh,
1: I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, it's different every day, and that's kind of why I'm a composer. I mean, I, I have been in bands where you have to kind of shoehorn any idea that you come up with into the genre that your audience expects to hear or wants to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, being in a rock band, if you come up with an idea for like, you know, an electronic music track or a string quartet or something like that, you either file it away for another day or you figure out a way to kind of transpose that into the genre that your band uh, is coming out with. I mean, there are a few artists like David Bowie or Beck or Madonna or, you know, people like that who are chameleons. But there, are, you know, most bands or artists tend to have to stick in their wheelhouse a little bit. You know, if uh, if Jay Z came out with an opera next week, I I don't know that his fan base would, you know, go along with him. But when you're a composer, you get hired one day to do a, a you know a, a hospital commercial using piano and strings. The next day. You you have to score a rocket launch and make it sound you know super mean or or big or gigantic you know and then the next day you're uh, you know you're doing a um, a bluegrass tune or, or something like that and I love that like right. because I listen I listen to and love all those types of music I I don't do all of them equally well but I really enjoy the variety and so because I, I love all kinds of music and love all kinds of instruments. And, you know, if you saw my my studio, it's just full of everything. It's like, you know, sometimes you see the, the box of Crayola crayons and it's like eight colors or 16. And, like, I've got the pack of, like, 5,000. <laughs> and so when I'm working on any certain project, I've learned that you can't just, like, let yourself... Use anything. I, I find that I can get more creative, come up with better ideas, and work faster if I limit my palette, limit the time that I I spend on it, and you know, kind of ironically, uh, the the smaller the corner that you paint yourself into, the more free you are to kind of um, be creative and come up with innovative solutions that you wouldn't normally if you could just use kind of anything under the sun. So, uh, sure. you know. I'd say that my music started when I was nine as a guitar player and bass player. And I definitely come from like a rock pop area. Uh, the Beatles, Jimi Hendrix, Bob Marley, you know, uh, all the music of the sixties, uh, seventies, eighties, all of those tones are just kind of in my head in a blender. And, um, you know, like the Beatles, their use of the orchestra definitely opened my eyes to the fact of like you don't just have to be a rock musician. You could take a song that you wrote on guitar and turn it into a, a double string quartet, like Eleanor Rigby. I take stuff I write on the ukulele and turn it into orchestra or Moog or or whatever. Um, you know, in a band you have to filter all this stuff through your bandmates. In in filmmaking, you have to f- filter it all through the story you're trying to tell and the collective vision of all of the filmmakers that you're working with. Um, And I dig that too, because you know, the, the ideas that other people have and, and the length of the scene and um, the overall visual approach and artistic approach of the film also paints me into a smaller and smaller corner. And so it's, it's like, I like those creative restrictions and kind of, it's It's like when you're in school and you um, you want to write an essay like you have to you have to write a 10 page paper or something. Well, you can't make a 10 page paper about wine. It's too vast of a subject it It'll give you paralysis and you won't know where to start. But the more and more you drill down to a specific thing, then then it opens the floodgates and you can just gush out the information that you have. So you could write a 10-page paper on organic winemaking in the Sonoma Valley, you know, after 2010 and after, you know, the effects of, you know, this or that amendment to the national organic standards or something sure. like that, you
0: know. You, the more you narrow down and focus, the more you can say things that are, I guess, universal.
1: Yeah, and it just... it takes out that like paralysis by analysis thing where Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, if I've only got these eight colors, then you're a lot quicker to flow through your ideas. Uh, So much music gets the the life edited out of it. Um, I try very hard. I'm very uh, detail oriented. And so I have to be very careful to uh, try to not let myself you know, quantize everything or, you know, meaning line it all up on the the grid exactly mathematically where the notes should lie. If if you listen to real musicians, they don't, when a track is really grooving, you listen to a really good funk band, they are not quantized, they are not on the grid. Um, They are dragging that beat um, at various different levels. In fact, like, after years and being in bands um i was at this party and it was right when guitar hero was coming out the video game where you kind of like match the notes on the little five button guitar controller yeah
0: and accuracy is everything right
1: yeah 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 accuracy is is everything and and it wants you to be like robotically on the beat and Uh. so i was i was you know i knew how to play the songs on a real guitar because uh, I've been teaching guitar for almost twenty years and, and playing since nineteen eighty six. Right,
0: but you swing, so you you didn't. So, do so I was well. swinging, yeah. and I was
1: behind the V, and I was like, <laughs> I was getting <laughs> destroyed by non musicians who just knew how to manipulate the controller and the you know what the game wanted for from you,
0: you know, timing wise. So, uh, so what's yeah. next for you? You've, uh, I mean, obviously uh, Apollo Eleven was was massively successful. Uh, and and you know hugely acclaimed. where do you go next from there? Well, I did a
1: a short film uh, for ESPN in top rank boxing with Peter Berg um, last fall. It was called uh, Heavy, which was Fury versus shorts um, so fury the the heavyweight uh, champion boxer had a, a match and basically um, Peter Berg saw Apollo 11 and he was thinking, I think one of the things I tried to do with the score was try to underline the danger that the the astronauts were under and, and basically just how difficult the task was. Because oh. nowadays, it's like people don't understand how it it wasn't a sure thing that they were even going to survive. I mean, now we, we grew up our whole lives knowing that we walked on the moon and Apollo 11 was successful. And who cares? Yawn, move on to the next thing. But back in the day, I mean... They had a one in four chance of dying. Like, I, if you hand me four face down playing cards and tell me that one out of the four is means that you're gonna put a gun to my head and kill me, I don't like that game very much. <laughs> yeah, but those guys sure. knowingly did that. Wow. Um, so I tried to make put that in the music. Um, he saw that, and he actually. So he's a he's a director famous for uh, Lone Survivor, um, Friday Night Lights. All of uh, Mark Wahlberg's uh, last five or six uh, films. Uh-huh. He, but he also owns a boxing gym. He, he loves it. He, it's kind of his life. So he saw that and he was seeing in the, in the headlines that uh, tons of boxers were dying from swelling in their brains, you know, a couple of days after a match. That you know, they walked out of the ring and then died in a hospital bed a couple of days later. So he was like, you know, that music and that vibe of Apollo Eleven kind of works. It would be cool to do a verite boxing short film and have it give it the da- the sense of danger and, and the electronic on sound the of edge. heavy
0: peril. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So we did that um, last fall, and um, and uh, I, I actually just this week. Got uh, the green light. We closed a deal on an upcoming uh, thing for broadcast, but I, I'm not allowed to talk about it yet. Um, but the, something very exciting is coming up. So, uh,
0: more spaceships?
1: No, not spaceships, but uh, but definitely uh, people living on the edge and, and trying things that have never been done. Um, and uh, and it's also back. 40, 50 years ago era. Right. So human
0: conquest and exploration.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I'm really excited about that. I, I wish I could share more, but uh, that's one of the bummers about being a composer. Is you know, if you're in a band, you know right away while you're playing the song if the song is being, you know, received well by the audience. And sure. If you play a great show. You you end your set, you put your guitar down, and you go, you know, go to the bar to get a drink, and uh, and somebody comes up and is like, oh, my God, amazing. And it's like, you get instant feedback and gratification. Sure. If you're a composer, you might have the day, your the composing day of your whole career, and just nail it, and just, you know, do the best cue ever, and no one will know for six to 12 months and even then like they might see it in a the theater and be like wow that music's awesome but never you know that compliment never makes its way back to you sure. so well the good news is you can still go to the
0: bar there's yeah that, that that part of it still works <laughs> that's right that's yep. right well oh, there's always the bar <laughs> yep. Matt it seems like a good place to leave it thanks so much for your time today I really appreciate it
1: oh man thanks for having me it was it's really fun I could talk about this stuff for hours so brilliant
0: that's film score composer Matt Morton and that's the MTF podcast you can find Matt and a lot more about his music and his vintage synthesizer gear at mattmortonmusic.com I'm Andrew Dubber. If you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at Dubber and MTF is at Music Tech Fest, all one word. The MTF podcast's out every Friday. So if you haven't already, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, or whatever your favourite podcast app might be. And if you do like what you hear, you can share, rate and review us. It really helps other people who might be into this sort of thing to find us. Go wash your hands, be safe, be healthy, have a great week and we will talk soon. Cheers you